If you have your Bibles this morning, open them up to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9. This morning we continue in Luke's Gospel. While you're turning there, I want to tell you about an event that took place a little, a little over 50 years ago, even before me, believe it or not. February 25th, 1964, there was a 22-year-old boxer. He had just defeated the world heavyweight champion. As he was leaving the rink, a microphone was thrust in his face. This is what he said. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest thing that ever lived. I've just turned 22 years old, and I've upset the heavyweight champion of the world. I must be the greatest. I've showed the world. I've shook up the world. I'm the king of the world. Listen to me. I'm the greatest. I can't be beat. Now you know who that is, of course, right? Yeah. His name at the time was Cassius Clay. He became known as Muhammad Ali. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. I'm the greatest. It was part of his shtick. It was part of his persona. I'm the best. I'm the greatest. At the time, the world didn't really know what to do with that. How he handled this, this, this level of arrogance and pride. Of course, we, we see it all over the place today, don't we? Especially in the sports world. Just very nearly made me sick of watching any of it, to be honest with you. Sack at a football game, a, a basket that's made at a basketball game, and celebration like they've just won the Super Bowl or the national championship or something like that. And now we can bemoan that all we want to, but we've created it, haven't we? Yeah, of course we have. I mean, for crying out loud, $154 million for a four-year contract? No wonder a person is proud and arrogant. We've made that the case. Back to the subject at hand, Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. The issue is an issue of pride in the lives of the apostles, no less. It's an issue of pride in, in the lives of those who were living closest to Jesus. Now the Bible has a lot to say about pride. I, I just did a, a quick little survey this week and let me share with you some of the verses that I found related to the topic of pride. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 12, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. James chapter 4, verse 6, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Proverbs has much to say. In chapter 11 we read this, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. In chapter 16, verse 5, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. And then in verse 18 of the same chapter, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is a destructive force within our lives, and yet it is a force with which every single one of us today struggle, isn't it? Yes, it is. I'll answer for you. I'll answer for me. I'll answer for all of us. 
pride is an issue with which we struggle on a consistent basis. J.C. Ryle once said, Of all creatures, none has so little right to be proud as man. And of all men, none ought to be so humble as the Christian. We find the apostles living in pride in Luke's gospel in chapter 9. You'll notice, looking at verse 46, there was, first of all, pride in prestige. Look at what we read here. There, there was the reading of the same passage from Mark's gospel. Luke's account is, is a little bit uh, abbreviated compared to Mark's gospel. But here we read, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Jesus says, just in this very same chapter, healed a boy who was demon-possessed. And then on the heels of that, he has reminded his disciples of his impending death, that death is coming for him quickly. And now on the heels of that, we read that here they are arguing among themselves as to which of them was a great, the greatest. Can you imagine that? Here you have a group of Muhammad Ali's meeting together supposing to follow Christ. And here they are back and forth, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the greatest arguing about who might have been the, the greatest. This is a striking thing to me. It belongs to the kindergarten of spiritual experience. After a year and a half with Jesus at this point, they had caught so little of who He is and what He is about that they are entering into an argument over who is the greatest among them. Now there could have been several reasons for this. There, should, there, there could have been various ways to explain why they were uh, in this level. Maybe it happened as a result of their travels. You remember in the first part of Luke's gospel here in chapter 9, Jesus has sent them out and He's told them that He gives them authority over demons and He's given them the power to cure diseases. And maybe they're coming off of that and they're comparing notes with one another, as we have a tendency to do. So someone comes along, well, I, I, I cured seven people who couldn't see, and I cast out two demons. <laughs> well, let me tell you what I did. I cured nine people who couldn't walk, and I cast out five demons. <laughs> well, I've got all of you beat. I raised four back to life who were dead, and I cast out ten demons. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. Maybe that was the root of it. One, one upsmanship. Anything you can do, I can do better. Well, perhaps it was based upon what had just happened with Peter, James, and John. They'd gone up with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration, had had this incredible spiritual experience of seeing Jesus transformed, transfigured before them. All of the deity on the inside begins to blaze on the outside and they see Him in His unvarnished glory and majesty. Perhaps Peter, James, and John had a bit of a haughty spirit after that. Look at the experience that I just had with Jesus. Well, perhaps they were anticipating an earthly kingdom that Jesus, they thought, would establish. 
They just got into a discussion over who's, who's going to have what position when that kingdom is established. Who's going to be Jesus' right-hand man? And they have this discussion, they have this argument among themselves as to which one of them was the greatest. We don't know what precipitated it, but here it was. Here they are living in a very high view of themselves, in a very low view of the greatness of God. You know what's striking about this is this is not the only time that this has happened. In fact, as we continue to make our way through Luke's gospel, we will eventually one day come to Luke chapter 22, Lord willing, and there, on, on the eve of Jesus, going to share the, the, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, with these people. We read that they enter into this meal, Luke twenty-two twenty-four. a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 22. In, in fact, quite honestly, it appears from the usage of the verbs that Luke puts within this retelling of the story that this was a constant issue. This was a constant argument that they had. Who's going to be the greatest? How does Jesus correct this? Well, in verse 47, we see how he corrects this. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Now, Mark's gospel, as was read for us a moment ago, says that they were in this house, and they had had this discussion as they were walking along the streets. They get to the house, and Jesus looks at them and says, What, what were you talking about? Now, why does Jesus ask the question? Is he curious as to the nature of their conversation? No, he knew the nature of their conversation. It's much like Adam uh, when he had sinned against God and God shows up in the garden and cries out, Where are you? God knew exactly where they were. They needed to admit and confess where they were. So Jesus asks them, What were you talking about? And remember, none of them wanted to answer. Now, we'll talk about this amongst ourselves, Jesus. You just carry on. I would imagine they would be completely embarrassed and mortified. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. There's, there's historical commentaries that talk about this event and they say that this very event in Luke chapter 9, in Mark's gospel as well, when they were meeting in a house in Capernaum, the commentators say that they believe it was probably the home of Peter himself. If you travel to Capernaum, you can see the supposed site, even today, of Peter's home. There's also reason to think that this might have been Peter's very child that Jesus took as they were in Peter's home. And he put this child by his side. And he said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus deals with the pride issue up front. He places this child by his side. Next to Jesus' side was a position of prominence. If you were invited to a person's home in this culture and you were asked to sit next to the host, that would be a position of prominence. And Jesus takes this child. Now, in this culture, they didn't view children as we view children today. We, 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 by and large, nearly make an idol out of our children, myself included, I confess. 
But in this culture, it wasn't the case. It was truly the case that in that culture, children were to be seen and not heard. Children were the lowest of the low. In fact, in this culture, you you couldn't even teach a child the Torah if he was under the age of 12. And so they said literally to, to spend time with a child was a waste of that time. Thankfully, that attitude has been corrected. But when Jesus takes this child, places him in his midst, It's his way of saying, look at the lowest of the low, the low rung on the cultural and societal ladder. And he says, he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now it's interesting that he doesn't doesn't make the application of this by saying, be like this child and be the lowest. That's not what Jesus says here. What Jesus says here is, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Be like this. Receive the one who is lowest. You know, we don't do that in our culture, do we? No, we don't. We we put to the side the lowest. We, We leave out the lowest. We, we want to link arms with the powerful. We want to link arms with the influential. We want to grab hold of those who have power and those that can help us in some way. But what Jesus says here is, you link up with those that have nothing. You link up with those that have nothing to offer, that are nothing, and in that you show greatness to those that this world would push aside. Church, we're called to receive them. We're called to embrace them. Remember at a place, having an outreach to children of the community, community had changed drastically around the church. God had blessed with an influx of young families and young children, opportunity to share the gospel, to pray that Jesus would change a young life that would become his for years. The criticism that was endured by that. These these little hooligans coming to our church rub their fingers down the walls and make a mess. Pride and arrogance. Jesus says, has no place for a follower of Christ. He who is least among you all It's the one who is greatest. You think this child is least, Jesus is saying. But in my kingdom, it is the least who get the prominence. Instead of touting their achievements, the apostles needed to humble themselves and acknowledge that they had no rank, no achievement that merited entrance into God's kingdom. Are you aware of that today? That there is no merit on our part, no achievement on our part that grants us entrance into Christ's kingdom. 
Salvation is received without our contribution to it. And everyone who enters the kingdom, everyone is considered the greatest. So there is no spiritual ranking within God's family. Is it today that maybe you have an overestimation of yourself and an underestimation of the greatness of God? What or who receives the focus of your life? I, me, my, mine. We can even get to the point where we take pride in our religious conversation. It's a constant struggle against pride, isn't it? It is. How are you doing in the battle? When you recognize the greatness of Jesus and you seek to live in His life, you will discover yourself falling way behind in the equation of things. No longer a demand for your preferences. No longer an unwillingness to serve others. No longer a need to be recognized. No longer a a desire for acclaim. Simply a desire to live for Christ and place Him first in your life and let Him take care of everything else. There was the pride of position. But then beyond that, there was the pride of prestige as well. Look at verse 48. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Someone has been casting out demons. The apostles tried to stop him because he wasn't part of their group. Now, there's been a great abuse of this passage, and we'll we'll come to this in just a moment. But before we look at the abuse of the passage, let's understand what Jesus means by this. this. This passage is talking about a party spirit that has begun to exist within the life of the apostles. If you're not part of our group, then you need to be silenced. You need to be stopped. Now, we know that beliefs matter here at Boone Trail Baptist Church, don't we? We know that theology matters. We know that doctrine is important. But friends, we need to take care that that does not lead us to a party spirit in regard to other faithful, gospel-believing, Christ-exalting, Bible-preaching churches that may differ with us on a point or two of minor doctrine. In our lives, there are primary issues. The the authority of God's Word, the nature of Christ's atonement, the validity of the resurrection, the imminent return of Jesus Christ. There are those things that are primary issues. Beyond that, there are things that are secondary issues. There are even things that are tertiary issues that go beyond that. Maybe you, you heard about the guy who who died and he went to heaven and while he was there at heaven St. Peter was walking him around and and showing him everything that there was in heaven came to a room while they were there in heaven and St. Peter looked at the guy and he goes now listen you need to be really quiet as we walk past this room because that's where the Baptists are and they think they're the only ones up here Friends, we don't have a monopoly on biblical truth. We should rejoice whenever the gospel is being proclaimed. 
wherever it's being proclaimed and by whomever it's being proclaimed. I, I love to listen to preachers and read preachers and don't tell anyone this, but occasionally I'll even read a Presbyterian. Every once in a while I've even read from an Anglican or two. Yeah, that was a little bit quieter there, wasn't it? Whoa, wait a minute now. You're getting close now. Now see, here, there, there is a way that this passage has been abused. Sometimes people use this passage to appeal to the belief that we shouldn't care about theological differences at all. Well, that's not true. I mean, Paul rejoiced, you read in Philippians chapter 1, because there were those who were preaching Christ out of selfish motivations for impure reasons. And Paul comes along and says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. I'm glad that the gospel is proclaimed. I'm glad that people point to Jesus. But look at what he says to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Doctrine does matter. Get the gospel right. Understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But if there are others, even of differing denominations, that are right on the gospel, we can stand with them. Where they err, that's where we part ways. We don't have a monopoly on truth, but by doggies, let's make sure we stand on the truth of the gospel in all things. There's a pride of position, a pride of prestige, and then finally, very quickly, a pride of power. Verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, in other words, when the time came for his death, burial, resurrection, and eventual ascension back to heaven, back to be with the Father, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Why did he set his face to go to Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem is where he was going to die. A year and a half he's been with them, teaching them. Another year and a half or so he's going to die for them and for you. And here he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Large group of people send word ahead. So we've got a group that's coming in. We're going to need a place to stay. We're going to need a place to eat. They, they, they didn't have TripAdvisor then. So you had to go and take care of this in person. And so this group goes on. Jesus sent these messengers ahead. And they enter a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for them. Now we've got a problem. Because, you see, this, this was the most direct way for Jesus to get from where he was to Jerusalem. But to pass through Samaria was not a well-received thing. If you go back to Old Testament history, after Solomon's reign as king, the kingdom of Israel is divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. There is a, a civil war of sorts. 
King Jeroboam in the north didn't want his citizens to go down to Jerusalem to the temple to worship. He was afraid that if they went from the northern kingdom down to the southern kingdom to the temple to worship, that they would become loyal to the southern kingdom and he would lose his kingdom. And so what does Jeroboam do? But he sets up a place of worship in the northern kingdom. Act of defiance, opposition, and rebellion against God and God's plan. There in this region you have the Samaritans. They worship on Mount Gerizim. The Jews would worship at the Temple Mount. And the Samaritans believed that Jerusalem was the wrong place to worship. It's not the right place to worship. And so the Samaritans found out not only Jesus was a Jew, but he was on his way to Jerusalem. Nope, you're not coming through here. No, we're not going to have you here in our place. Verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And then listen to the pride and the arrogance here in verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. It's no wonder that James and John received the nickname from Jesus, Sons of Thunder. Here they want to call down fire on the Samaritans to destroy them. But Jesus turned and he rebuked them. You still don't get it, do you? After a year and a half, you still don't get it, do you? I'm coming now not in judgment. I'm coming to bring salvation. I've come to die for these people. Luke tells us that they went on to another village. You see in this, and it's an amazing thing what happens in the lives of the disciples here. Earlier we've seen Jesus heal this boy with an unclean spirit. He, he did that because the disciples lacked the faith to do it. They didn't really believe in the, the power and the command of Jesus. So here you have this boy with his dad and the disciples. They were a complete disaster at it. He tries to explain the atonement to them right after that, and, and they didn't understand it, verse 45. They, they just don't get it. Then here they are arguing over who is the greatest, and then they're trying to, to shut up people, trying to do the work of the kingdom, and now they want to torch cities. For crying out loud, people, get it together. Surprised that there could be any pride in the midst of this at all. Look at the failure, one right after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. Is one failure on top of another. I'll tell you right now, if this had been my small group, I'd have fired them all and looked for another group. But aren't you glad Jesus doesn't give up on his followers? He doesn't. 
It's not time for fire, James. It's not time for fire, John. He rebukes them. What a display of pride. In their position, in their prestige, even in their power, look what we can do. We've healed people, we've cast out demons, except the one you couldn't because you didn't trust the words of Jesus. How often we forget about those. How do you fight pride? What would have been great for these disciples is to realize exactly who they are. You see, maybe they did take pride in the healing and exorcism ministry that Jesus had given to them. But whose power and authority was that? It wasn't theirs, was it? No. So what do we have to brag about? In fact, when we try it ourselves, not believing Jesus, we just make a big mess of it. If you really want to fight pride, recognize who you are. And then on top of that, recognize the greatness of God. Here were these people struggling with unbelief, struggling with understanding, struggling with pride, struggling with self-preoccupation. Jesus doesn't quit on them. No, we're told that he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. It's Jesus' way of saying, that's why I'm here. I'm going to the cross to die for them to die for you. Boy, pride gets in the way. It gets in the way for all of us. Take pride in so many things because we don't recognize who we are and we don't recognize the greatness of God in our lives. Some of you here today, the very thing that has kept you from salvation is the pride and arrogance counter to admitting that you are a sinner and need a Savior. It's pride that keeps you from the grace and forgiveness of God. Some of you, can, can I just say, enjoy what you have in your pride now. Because as we learned in these other verses, God has a way to humble the pride. I've experienced it. You've experienced it. Can I close with these verses from Philippians chapter 2? The call to us as believers is to repent of that pride and lay it aside and embrace Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have this mind. Jesus, the one who has a right to be proud, and yet he humbled himself and took the form of a servant. Father, we thank you for this day. And the difficult reminder from your word that pride has no place in the lives and hearts of your children. But Father, this monstrous dragon of pride will never be slain in our hearts apart from the work of your word and your spirit. Father, strengthen us to reckon ourselves as dead so that Christ might live in us. Strengthen us to live in humility that others would see not us but would see Christ and Christ alone. We ask this in His name. Amen.